0: welcome to episode 29 of the HP Lovecast podcast. I am Michelle Brittany, editor of the Bram Stoker nominated Horror in Space and the book review editor at the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. I write on all things pop culture with special emphasis on mummies, tiki, and horror.
1: I'm Nicholas Dyack, pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. Michelle and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarland. For today's episode, we'll be discussing two short stories by Kevin Wetmore Jr. These stories are City of Our Lady, Queen of Angels, Virgin Mother of a Thousand Young, and Urban Temples of Cthulhu, Modern Mythos Anthology, edited by Kurt Cave and published by the First United Church of Cthulhu. The second story is Notebook Concerning the Class Struggle in Dunwich, Found in the Ruins of a Construction Site, and Whispers of the Abyss, Part 2, edited by Kat Roka and published by Zero One Publishing. Both of these stories were published in 2016. We'll finish the episode by sharing news and other housekeeping items, including what we'll be discussing on next month's podcast.
0: And before we get started discussing the two stories from Kevin Wetmore, we thought it would be advantageous to provide a brief bio. Kevin is a professor of theater arts, an actor, director, stage combat choreographer, and an award-winning author. He writes a good deal about popular culture, horror, science fiction, and their relationships to the larger social context. He is a proud member of the Horror Writers Association and an author of numerous short stories as well. He describes himself as a Connecticut Yankee now living in Los Angeles with stops on the way in the UK and Pittsburgh. Kevin also writes extensively on the film and theater of Japan and Africa. He has also written about Star Wars, Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, Shakespeare, Kabuki, zombie movies and post 9/11 horror. He has more degrees than a thermometer but hasn't let it go to his head. He hopes you enjoy his work, learn from the nonfiction and delight in the fiction.
1: Story number 1. City of Our Lady, Queen of the Angels, Virgin Mother of a Thousand Young. Dr. Rafael Gutierrez is a professor of theology who specializes in the lore and depictions of the paintings of La Virgin de Guadalupe. Currently on sabbatical, trying to find a breakthrough in his research to help him obtain tenure, Raphael travels the streets of LA looking for images of the La Virgin to document and study. One morning while out and about, Raphael uh, happens upon a chapel he had not seen before with a variation of the La Virgin painted on it, one that depicts tentacles, stars in odd constellations, and a malevolent gaze. While admiring the painting, Raphael meets the padre of the chapel, Father Sebastian Munoz. The two bond over the painting, and Raphael is welcomed inside to partake in services. Inside the chapel, he happens upon a courtyard of a decaying tree, while blind and tongueless nuns work a loom to create tapestries for the La Virgin. Raphael is invited to give prayer, which he does, but offends the father and his sect who worships the Great Mother. Raphael flees the chapter, chapel to his car where two nuns are waiting for him they slice his throat and father munez arrives destroying the evidence of the chapel and the painting that raphael collected saying that the world is not yet ready to know the truth of the dark mother all right so first questions first is how'd you like the story
0: (laughs) um i like the story out of the two it's funny um i originally was more um attracted to the notebook uh, story that we'll talk about in the second part of this uh, podcast, but I actually found that this, this story to be very um, horrifying. I have a thing about uh, stories around uh, religious horror, um, like The Exorcist, um, and I was actually reminded of a 1970s film called The Sentinel. And the images that Kevin uses with regards to the nuns uh, is has resonates for me my fear of nuns and habits and things like that. So unless
1: the movie is Sister Act, when you see a nun in a film, there will always be evil things happening. <laughs>
0: I think so. Yes, Sister Act uh, excluded from from the list. But um, yeah, I actually. Uh, very much enjoyed it. It was a uh, quick pace, but uh, it definitely stayed with me after and I had uh, it resonated for me.
1: You know, what's the impact of the story? If it doesn't really have an impact, why bother? I actually am kind of drawn to these kind of stories because they're more slice of life. Like, if this story hadn't happened, it wouldn't have had a big effect on the greater scheme of things. Some folks might be, view that as kind of a negative. I like it. It makes you... uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it allows a different type of approach to storytelling. Not everything has to be a giant, big, uh, earth-shattering, grand expose story. Again, it makes it sound like that's a negative. It's not. I I like these kind of more slice-of-life approaches to Lovecraft. And kind of related, I know one of the other reasons I like it is it's a story that's in our backyard. You know, having lived in uh, near L.A. for the past 10 years, it's, it makes me think of some of the positives when we were reading uh, Ian Welke's In Times at Ridgemont High, which was a, a prior episode that we re, uh, recorded. That story took place in a fictional uh, Ridgemont over near San Pedro and uh, Long Beach area. This one takes place in the... Eastern L.A. area, and it's an area that Michelle and I have, you know, we've driven through and been through. So there's a little something more about, I want to say, accessibility, where uh, when you read a story, and you're like, oh, I've been there. I, I I know what the architecture's like. I know what the people's like. When you read a lot of other Lovecraft stories, you know, it's kind of far removed. It's all over the New England area. Well, we don't live in New England. Uh, every time I think of New England, I always think of, you know, pilgrims and stuff like that, and it's not what it is like at all. Um, So I'm kind of drawn to that aspect of this uh, story, and I have to give it a a chuckle of uh, uh, the parking situation in the story is real. Uh, Whenever Michelle and I go over to L.A., finding parking anywhere is atrocious, and Wetmore <laughs> captures that horror succinctly, in fact, i don 't know what's more horrific the uh the fate of uh Raphael here are you know possibly getting his car towed and ticketed but aside from all that note In all seriousness, this was a very enjoyable story that's a you know it's a, it's in an, an anthology it's about more modern and urban takes on lovecraft and in that regard, it succeeds admirably.
0: Well, and I would add, uh, I liked your point about Slice of Life. Um, I'm thinking back not only to Welke's story in times at Ridgemont High, but I'm also thinking to last month's uh, episode in which we discussed Tim Wagoner's uh, story. Um, and the title escapes me now. Uh, Sorrow
1: Road. And you're right, it is a Slice of Life story. Yeah,
0: and it's, it's interesting how those t- tend to resonate with, um, more closely. Maybe it's a more personal experience. Um, what I hadn't mentioned in why I liked the story, just as you had said, was the fact that, you know, it is set in LA. It's, it's in our backyard. I think I even remember that area driving through that area. Um, so it does, it, it, it it allows you to build connections. Um, we have the connection that we live nearby, but it's also the connection of that slice of life. We, we, Anybody that's an academics have gone through, you know, trying to do research and, um, you know, probably driving out at some point to go look for that research and find that that, that story um, that's going to help hook and give you tenure. It's not an easy process. In fact, I'd say
1: it's with without putting words into a, a Kevin Wetmore's mouth here, but I'm going to assume that's probably one of the themes of this story and the story that we'll be talking about momentarily, uh, since Kevin himself is a professor, I can only assume that the woes that he's gone through trying to you know, negotiate you know, uh, academic politics, obtaining tenure himself, is probably resonating in this story as well. Uh, I could see um, the same obstacles, and plus since he's also local here, <laughs> that, that Raphael's probably a good stand-in for Kevin and some of his adventures. The big difference being that uh, Kevin hasn't been uh, killed by an evil Cthulhu sect.
0: <laughs> At least not that we're aware of. We haven't talked to him for a week, so um, <laughs> may, maybe in in that week. Um, I think the other thing with regards, because Kevin is a professor, he's been on both sides of the desk, so to speak, so I do wonder if there wasn't some sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, with regards to being a professor and, and uh, taking kind of that hard line with you know uh, a student that's just trying to skate by.
1: I, I think we'll definitely touch on that in story number two, for sure. Uh, yeah, the definitely both sides of being a professor coin. That would be the theme of this episode, I imagine. <laughs> um, I think one of the other kind of standout things for this story is it kind of ties into Lovecraft's overall usage of art in his uh, stories, you know, from Pickman's model to Call of Cthulhu. Um, one of the things I kind of want to zero in here is... Uh, a lot of instances of depictions of art in Lovecrafts communicate more ideas than at first glance. Like, uh, for, for example, when in Call of Cthulhu, when they get the, the, the bas-relief and the Cthulhu statue, you know... People look at it and they read more into it than what's initially there. Oh, I I got these images of cyclopean cities and monstrosity. Well, on the other hand, you know, we've seen our fair share of pictures of Cthulhu and other deities. Like, oh, yeah, they're grotesque. Oh, yeah, there's something, you know, there. But, you know, it's that other layer of information that's being communicated that uh, is kind of neat. Uh, Same thing in um, Pikmin's model. It, so in this story when uh, Raphael comes across you know the this uh you know ma, uh, this variation of the law Virgin you know he's going in and expecting you know yeah I, i'm I'm familiar with this painting but I'm seeing something else but the the painting starts communicating other things to him uh, for instance he sees mountains and he immediately associates those mountains of Antarctica well. Why? You know, there's nothing else to cue him in at these mountains from Antarctica. As readers reading that, we're probably immediately cued in on, oh, mountains of madness, Antarctica, you know, the city down there. But how would, you know, Dr. Raphael know that? Well, he wouldn't, because, you know, if he's looking at, you know, mountains that shouldn't be in there as his painting, they could have came from the Andes, the Himalayans, the Rockies. Who knows? They could have come from anywhere else. But he explicitly says Antarctica. Um, I guess I'm zeroing in on that just because... I think in a lot of Lovecrafts depictions of, of paintings and art and whatnot, it's sort of like the movie The Matrix where, you know, one of the characters is sitting there looking at code and he's like, I don't even really see any code anymore. I see blonde, blue net, and so on and so forth. I think if you're a certain type of character in a Lovecraft story, you pick up on stuff that other characters will not pick up on. And it just happens that Dr. Raphael, since he's an expert in this type of painting, and I think we'll probably talk about this shortly, like why does he even go to this chapel in the first place, that he can pick up subtext and semiotical sayings that other folks can't. Does that kind of make sense?
0: Yeah, he is the uh, protagonist expert that we are familiar with in the various stories of H.P. Lovecraft. Or Lovecraft, sorry. <laughs> Not Lovecast. Um But we find in many of Lovecraft's stories, oftentimes the protagonist is in some sort of educational, uh, intellectual type of study or field. And so I think that this is a a case where Kevin has perpetuated one of those techniques that Lovecraft uh, uses in his stories. It it works well with with Lovecraft stories. I think it it works well here um, because otherwise it it gives us the hook to get into that chapel that we might not otherwise have. Now, where I think he explicitly says that it's Antarctic, um, I'm kind of wondering how he made that jump, where I'm not sure that he would be necessarily an expert in geography and that's what I'm getting
1: at is the painting Mm -hmm. itself has coded messages Mm -hmm. that people can't read but because one he's the main protagonist but two because he's probably tuned into this he's probably sort of like in Call of Cthulhu the different artisans and whatnot they're being spoken to by Mm -hmm. you know a sleeping Cthulhu and ideas are planted in their head I can only just assume that you know uh, this is my grand kind of theory about this whole story in fact I'll just kind of spill it is how does he even come across this chapel in the first place? I mean, he makes it explicitly clear that he's driven through this area many times. His grandma lives nearby. He's never seen this chapel before. But sure enough, uh, he's down on his luck. He drives by, and there it is. So, you know, kind of the question is asked is, has the chapel always been there, and he's just not that observant? Or... You know, getting into kind of weird Lovecraft, non-Euclidean dimensional weirdness out there. Did this chapel actually not be there? And now it's there. It's kind of phased into an existence or something explicitly for... uh Uh, Raphael to come into, kind of like a test in a weird sort of way. He pulls up to it because they they even make mention that the painting there is explicitly there to call out for, you know, people that would be attuned to this, uh, uh, you know, like-minded people. And, of course, he's drawn in by that. The the father of the chapel mistakes him as, you know, someone who's going to be on the in crowd, and it turns out he's not. It kind of makes me think that all this is, you know... Again, this is this kind of my reading into it is that this was a sect that actually wanted Raphael to be a part of it. He has all this knowledge for it. It could be a way for later to appropriately spread the gospel of the great Mother when the time comes right now it's not the time hence why they kill him that after Raphael dies, this poly chapel will not be there right now will poly phase into existence when the time is needed. And again, there's nothing really there in the story that makes it explicit like that. It just It's just kind of a reading of it just happens to be at the right place at the right time when it wasn't there before that it's just... I don't, I don't know what the correct word to say for that is, but does that kind of make sense in a weird sort it of does. way? It does,
0: and actually I went a different direction. I actually felt that Raphael was driving in the area and because he was so specifically looking for... La Virgin uh, images that when he'd been through that uh, area before, he just missed it because that wasn't his, it wasn't necessarily his focus. Maybe he was not looking at that side of the street. We know in driving that when you're going down the street, you're looking all over and you know, it was, I think that honestly that he just probably missed it before, that it's not like a, a... you know cortex of you know the cthulhu appearing there because he's going through the area i don't believe that i think it's just something that he missed i guess maybe i'm a little more of the the down-to-earth rational person
1: It's so weird because usually i take that route and i'm actually taking that route in the second story we'll be discussing
0: yeah well it's just ambiguous that could
1: be both ways you know the sunken city of ryla you know it's there but it's not really there Mm -hmm. you know it's there when it needs to be there for instance and i kind of lean toward the the kind of magicalness that this is a, a A thing that's there but not really there in a weird sort of way but at the same time oh man yeah living down here for 10 years we've obviously like wait a second we've been at how do we not know about that restaurant you know it could go both ways i mean there's no right right answer to it um
0: it's kind of like for example when when we bought a uh, fiat before that i think we saw like maybe one fiat on the road. But once you own a Fiat, then you're like looking for other Fiats on the road. It's like it's in it's in that front part of the lobe of your brain to be looking for um those type of of cars after that. And I think after we got the 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 Fiat, we were actually seeing more Fiats because that was We were now programmed to look for that. And I think that's the case with Raphael. He knew that he needed to find some sort of hook. He was in desperation at this point because he knew that his uh, tenure track uh, studies was not going great. Um, So I do think that it just, you know, he he was being more conscientious about looking for something specific. One thing that I do want to go back to the art um, and I don't think that I made my point well, was the fact that the Antarctic Antarc- Mountains, I do feel that that's kind of a Kevin nod to, hey, all those of you who know about At the Mountains of Madness are going to pick up on this. I think that if he had just described it as icy, desolate uh, mountains, uh, you know, high peaks or something, all of us would have been like, oh, out the mountains of madness. And I think that wouldn't have detracted from the integrity of the story. And I think this is one of those points where you have to find the balance of how much homage are you going to give to Lovecraft and how much are you going to take to it and repurpose it to your own stories. And I do think that this is a, a case where maybe the balance was slightly off um, but you know, that's very minor. It should also
1: be noted that this story is indebted to uh, the Mound, which we'll have to uh, read on a future date so we can maybe come back and revisit this one. That's for sure. Um, I guess another thing to point out here is this is a professor character, and a lot of uh, Lovecraft stories are professors. So how does uh, Dr. Raphael compare to some of the other professors in Lovecraft's writing? You know, you've got a uh, Dr. Angel from Call of Cthulhu who dies. So in a way, uh, Raphael shares the same fate as that professor. Uh, but then, if you compare him to, like, say, Dr. Armitage, who's able to stumble across, you know, uh, you know, dark lore, forbidden knowledge, he's actually able to negotiate it quite well. And at the end of uh, you know, um, Dunwich, Har, able to destroy. Uh, Uh, Wilbur Watley's brother and it seems like Dr. Raphael kind of falls in the middle of the spectrum he's uh he kind of has the characteristics of both types of professors Uh, almost uh if he had maybe even a little bit more knowledge maybe he might have lived at the end maybe he would have uh but, but then we wouldn't have had much of a story he'd be like wait a second this is an evil painting I'm not gonna you know uh toy around with this I guess the other thing to kind of point out here is is that uh, Dr. Raphael he is a, a Latino character, which is a a nice uh, change of pace from other Lovecraft stories. Uh, in fact, the only other kind of book that immediately comes to hand is the collection of Heroes of Red Hook, which makes uh, explicit that every story in that anthology has a uh, a person of color, a marginalized person, or a minority as its protagonist and um the story follows suit in that regard, that it gives voice to a, you know, instead of a, you know, pale, frail, white dude uh, that's typically found in Lovecraft stories.
0: Yeah, I actually liked uh, the the take of the Latino um, environment, the beliefs. Um, I thought it was actually a very nice change of pace um, and gave different flavor um, and context to Cthulhu. I have over the years seen the Love Virgin, uh, iconography. Um, and I, I applaud Kevin for taking a different look at it and kind of Lovecraftian, uh, the image. Um,
1: well, still being respectful. Here, yes.
0: It? Oh yeah, definitely. From still being respectful, but it, it did give a, a kind of a different context. Yesterday we were out walking and, uh, we actually came across, uh, a Love Virgin, uh, a statue that we walk by all the time, but it did give us, you know, we actually stopped and and spent more time actually looking at the image and what it meant, and, you know, uh, Kevin actually goes into some detail with regards to its image, its history. Um, the various uh, significance of the various parts of it. So I actually, I took something away from the story and I was looking at it more closely and actually did a little more research uh, on the image that I didn't know before. So, I mean, for that, the story did a, a nice job. It, it it actually inspired me to go and learn more about the image and about the religion.
1: You know, uh, kind of a funny thing, and when you put it that way, it kind of makes me think of a a low-stakes uh, Dan Dan Brown uh, story where, you know, you have uh, secret sci- societies mixed in with, uh, you know, the religious Opus day and all this, you know, rewritten history. Uh, kind of, in a weird sort of way, super condensed into this one uh, story. So for all those Dan Brown fans out there, you can probably find something to like in this story. <laughs>
0: yeah, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, it, it was... I I think the the whole religious aspect uh, was pretty interesting. Um, I think that, uh, for for me, um, the images of the nuns uh, at the tapestry, um, all in unison, it actually gave me also the vibes of, I think it was, was it the brood, the hive, uh, the... Village of the Dam, all these kinds of films that, that create almost a telekinesis between the kind of scary element of the story. Um, and that, I thought, was really well played in this story because that actually stuck with me for quite a while after reading this story.
1: Tongueless blind nuns are scary.
0: <laughs> yes, they are. They are. And it, it just... Well, and the other thing that uh, Kevin brought up is that Raphael thinks that these are women that have been um, victims of domestic violence. Um, but he, he, you know, he is all throughout. He's thinking that there's something wrong. There's something wrong about this chapel, and it comes to light that the nuns have self-inflicted. Most likely, the the injury. You know, of cutting out their tongues um, and blinding themselves. And if that's not horrific, I don't know what is to, to actually do that to yourself. Um, but that, that was pr- probably the most scary part of the story for me. Um, and again, reminding me of the sentinel from the 1970s. Um, just that, you know, uh, authority that should be protective and caring. Um, even the Padre just was like creepy creepy (laughs) for me so i think that's about it for me on the story um and i think nick that kind of covers what you had uh with regards to the story
1: since now we've had a a story from the perspective of a professor i think it's time to move on to a story from the perspective of a college student
0: and for that we'll uh, switch over to the second story Short Story Number Two, Notebook Concerning the Class Struggle in Dunwich, Found in the Ruins of a Construction Site. Using an epistolary or diaries entry uh, narrative structure, Notebook Concerning the Class Struggle in Dunwich, Found in the Ruins of a Construction Site, is the short story of Neil Van Scoot, a Miss University student who decides to spearhead a habitat-for-humanity type of project during spring break. The entries commence with the first day of classes of spring semester and abruptly ends two months later with his last entry as he prepares to leave his tent to face whatever he believes it is the locals who are trying to scare him from his construction site in the Dunwich marshlands. As an activist and committed socialist, throughout his journey, Neil conveys his struggles with and criticisms of the other MU students as selfish Philistines who, quote, pander to the lowest human urges, end quote. So that's code for those MU (laughs) students who go to Florida for spring break. He is critical of capitalism and the effects of it, i.e. the oppression, repression, and racism, and Neil wants to do something to change the world. He also wants to redistribute the wealth, starting with his own family's fortune. So, Nick, what are your initial impressions of the story?
1: This was a mean story. (laughs) It's one of those dark, dark, dark comedies where the protagonist is one of those characters that you love to hate. Uh, Van Skloot is insufferable. He is that uh, pretentious other highly read uh, person that you know that tries to apply his knowledge to everything, but he hasn't quite grasped what, he's, what it is he's read. It's sort of like maybe reading an intro to Marxism without understanding all the nuances of Marxism, but still applying it like, you know, uh, if that's your hammer, all your problems seem like nails. But he's extremely insufferable and extremely judgmental. And, uh, Oh, he's he's evil to read, but on the other hand, we all know this character, and we've all had to deal with this type of character before. And then it's kind of mean spirited, but in a weird sort of way, you're like you're kind of glad he gets his comeuppance, but also sad because he dies, which is kind of in a weird sort of way. It's dark, but at the same time, you're like finally. <laughs> I, I I don't mean to be so mean-spirited against him because I uh we'll, we'll get to this in a minute. I I think it comes down to we'll talk about here act versus intent, which, you know, kind of tips his character into more nefarious territory instead of uh his altruistic facade that he puts on. But but back to the main question, I like story. Yeah, absolutely. love the other story. It's it's a dark comedy and uh it, it, it takes a certain amount of um Skill to bring kind of comedy to Cthulhu without going into outright parody or pa- or something like that where it's really outlandish. This one has enough of, in it's not outlandish, but it has enough of the uh, over the top pretension writing that you can't help but chuckle at it, and it's a nice comedic approach to Lovecraft that I hadn't seen before.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I actually. Uh... Really enjoyed this story, uh, insofar as you know Neil is not a likable character um and insufferable, <laughs> but you know that's typical of Lovecraft is that typically the the person charges full long in is the rational person, he's a rational rational slash irrational voice. Um, That narrates the story and as I said at the beginning of the plot synopsis this is diary entry so it is all from Neil's point of view we don't have it mediated through other characters Um, and in fact we only a couple of times have some dialogue which is typical of Lovecraft as well
1: well side note Because it's in this diary format, which adds to his pretentiousness, he's writing this diary as he actually... It's not for him. He wants this diary to be read by someone else. Like, if he wasn't to die at the end, spoiler, you know, this is something that later he would probably publish and say, here are my musings, because it is written to be discovered or or read by someone else. It, it, It has... That level of pretentiousness that it oozes to, it needs to be read by someone else, not just for him.
0: Well, I would take that a step further and, and actually say that these, well, I don't know that he is expecting others to read it. Um, I do expect him to use it as a resource when he writes his manifesto. <laughs> 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 so... Um, But kind of going back, because I I do want to... There's two things that you said in your initial impressions of the story. Uh, So the first one is, you know, he... These are these kind of stories where, you know, people kind of shit on others type of thing. And I know that's not usually a story that you like. So did you actually like this story?
1: Uh, I did, because... As much, well, I don't seem as really shitting on other. We're, we're not talking like the movie Changing Lanes here. Oh man, that movie is terrible. But
0: but those are t- the type of stories that you don't particularly care I, for. I don't.
1: I think it's just because this insufferable character is taking to the extreme of caricatureness. That again, it's a weird balance. It it is a parody of Lovecraft's writing, but at the same time, it's it's not. It, it feels. Genuine in a weird sort of way, just because we know people like this, we've met people like this, we've been to our fair share of academic conferences of people giving presentations. Like, we know this person. Um, it makes it more relatable that even though it's over the top, I feel like it's still grounded, and I don't feel a hundred percent put off by it, if that makes sense. And probably because again, it is a little over the top, and it has a little bit of a characteristic without being. I would say maleficent. Yeah, he, he's kind of a dick <laughs> to the girl he likes, and to his supposed friends that are helping him build it. But that's kind of the extent of it. It's within his character. It's written kind of well, and you uh, he can't help but chuckle at it. I think. Um, I, at the same time, I could see a different reading. This would be extremely cringy, especially in kind of right now political climate of Trumpism and whatnot. That, for all purposes, this character if he wasn't so left-wing, would be a hardcore right-wing Trump supporter. He kind of does the same playbook of, he, you know, there's F, you know, again, this is all written before, you know, Trump came into power, but there's the element of fake news, of oh, the student newspapers out to slander me, and he's using really broad strokes to paint things. Um, and that sort of way, it is kind of cringy in a way, um, but I, I don't feel put off by it just because I feel a little removed from it. And plus, again, he gets his comeuppance. But at the same time, he didn't have to die. But on the other hand, he, you know, people are warning him, "Don't, don't go build a house in the marshlands on the the Watley farm." So <laughs> you get what you deserve, there, dude.
0: Well, as we know, in Lovecraft stories and stories inspired by Lovecraft, the survival rate is. Typically not that high. So um, I like the point, though, that you bring up with regards to Neil, and I wanted to focus in on the concept of class struggle, because you alluded to the fact that when uh, Neil goes out to look for a location for, I think it's like half a dozen houses, he, uh, you know, 45 minutes away is Dunwich from uh, Miskatonic U, and... Uh, first I mean I don't know why he would go f- remove himself 45 minutes from the city uh to put up uh, housing for the disenfranchised um when there's really nothing out there it's a very rural area. Um cheap. I think he says it's cuz
1: it's cheap. But keep going. Yeah.
0: Well, but his father's funding. Yeah. So, um but the thing is is that there is uh two two instances where Neil Well, actually three. So Neil interacts with the auditors or the assessor's office to get the land. He uh, interacts with the locals when he's out on the Dunwich uh, farm uh, or marshlands. And, of course, you know, he he misreads, misunderstands their warning as them being basically hunters and poachers and country bumpkin type of things. And so, while there is a class struggle, for me in reading the story, I saw the class struggle as being really personal. That really the person having the class struggle was Neil himself. Uh, being from uh, a well off family, he's constantly uh, criticizing uh, the other students, uh, being uh, privileged, well off. Always, basically pointing his finger outward without realizing the old adage that there's, there's, you know, other fingers pointing back at you. The
1: projection is deep in this yes. story. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, and so, um, you know, Neil is very disconnected, and I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know about you, but initially with his girlfriend uh, Nicole, I actually read that that there really wasn't much of a relationship there. And I initially took it that he was either pretending that he and her were uh, in a relationship and it was like him having a, uh, I'm an air quote, relationship from afar. But then I saw that later they are actually interacting. And, you know, that is one of the things Lovecraft doesn't usually give voice to women. And we don't really get to hear Nicole's voice here, but I know that In my, I I would say, the first third of the story, I actually thought Neil was making up Nicole. And (laughs) that they weren't actually in a relationship together. Um, But that that was my initial reading of that. Uh, Later it changes, but initially that was something. I
1: I don't think you're far off. I I think the appropriate term here is friend-zoned. He is hardcore friend zone, but he doesn't know it. They probably have a very intimate relationship, but only so far as shared goals and socialism. He, I think, even hints at later that, you know, he takes a... He'd like to be that kind of godly, messiah figure, and she would be like, oh, you're so great, I'm all yours, type of deal. Maybe getting into, I hate to say it, but thinking the movie Mandy, with the, the, the cult in that film trying to get Mandy... I'm not saying that's what this character would become, but I'm not saying that's not what he would become a little bit later on. I could totally see this character, had he not been killed, by his own hand maybe, we'll talk about that in a little bit, that he would see himself as some sort of, you know, uh, Marxist messiah type figure that others would flock to him and follow him and whatnot. And again, he's, he's just spatting off, you know, Marxist and socialist platitudes anyway. But he's he's total friend zone. He doesn't even know it. Uh, mm-hmm. But he but he probably sees her in a weird sort of way. He probably has his property. <laughs> it's, it's kind of in a weird yeah. saying like that.
0: I think uh, that friend zone is actually helps to better understand. And I mean, it was a reading that I took from uh, his comment with regards to. Uh, valentine's day that that is not something that they um that they even um celebrate and i'm like yeah because he's 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 been friend zoned you know she's going off to her women's literature uh you know seminar and you know he decides well i'm going to go out to dunwich since i've got nothing else to do um but he he underplays he says that uh, Valentine's Day is a corporate-created holiday in order to practice, quote, outmoded and impressive courtship rituals. Um, and I, I I just took it to read that, you know, Nicole didn't want to spend Valentine's Day with, with someone who is not a romantic.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, oh, so again, going back to the projection... He pro again, we're seeing his diary. What yes. he's putting here is not what's really happening. So we kind of got unrelated, I'm sorry, unreliable narrator, which yes. I know you love. What probably yes, happened between the sentences is, hey, girl, you want to go out for Valentine's Day? You know, uh, I'll treat you to a nice dinner. Nah, I got other stuff to do. Meanwhile, you know, stupid. Brr, didn't want to go. I mean, okay, I'm more composed than that. You know, this is an oppressive day. No, he, he he wants in on that. Again, we only see. Oh seem- yeah, he
0: totally. And 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 again, I think that goes to the <laughs> class struggle, his own internal uh, struggle that he's having to basically mediate his life uh, philosophy. What's going to drive him? He comes from a privileged uh, family. Um, he's he using the family money to finance this project and yet he talks about you know well he's going to try and see if people will donate the concrete he even uh speaks to squatters rights he thinks that, well maybe i can uh use the money for uh the family money for other things i'll just go and squat on the land and i'm just like you know at every turn he defeats the purpose of a good socialist.
1: Well, I think this is probably one of the biggest themes here. In fact, this doesn't even need to be a Lovecraft story. This can actually almost be anything. It just has a nice little Lovecraft twist here. What makes this character kind of interesting is there's, there's motive and act versus what he really wants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he could put down on paper he wants to make housing for low-income people. But really, he actually doesn't care. He won't overtly, you know, I mean, actually, no, I take it back, he overtly does say that, you know, the the fact that, you know, one, he, he's building these out in the marshlands, he doesn't care, you know, these are, you know, I'm going to put these folks in the most undesirable place ever, out in the marshlands, so it goes back to your kind of prior statement, why building it so far out there, yeah, it's cheap, but, you know, he doesn't care, it's just the act of, well, I gave you free housing, yeah, sure, it's in a crappy marsh, but I, this is free housing for you, you should be grateful, you know, he he flat out admits that he doesn't know how to build a house. None of his crew know how to build a house. But that's irrelevant. It's the act of, well, I gave my time and energy and resources to build this. You should be grateful. Yeah, sure, this house is going to collapse on you. Yeah, sure, it doesn't have a basement and it'll flood and we didn't think about plumbing. But we we were being altruistic. So you should be grateful for that. That's this type of character is... is, yeah. is you know, the, the if it actually ends up having a benefit that's more to him, um, but it's the act of doing it that he's more uh, associate. Uh, you know, he, he clings on to. He wants to be seen as the altruistic person, as the uh, better than thou. Um, if he actually built these houses and people lived in them and they collapsed, it would be their fault. Well, you are not grateful enough. Yeah, sure, the houses collapsed on you, but come on, I gave my time and energy to build this for you come on, you know, get over it. You know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh my God, he is a Trump supporter. He's a left person Trump supporter. Well,
0: and, and, and he he does say several times how important the media is. That media uh, presence for him is very important. He, he plays it off, but at the same time, you know, he's building these houses out there in the marshlands and he's arranged for a... Journalist from uh, the Beacon to come out, interview him. The very
1: same newsletter, if I'm not mistaken, that's full of lies and slander at the beginning of the yes. <laughs> story.
0: Again, you know, it, the struggle is his. It's, it's and, and it's his perception. Um, and we only really get kind of a... Very briefly, we get insight into other people's perceptions. Like, I mean, Nicole actually you know says that he is Meghan
1: privately funded
0: yeah the privately funded revolutionary you know and and apparently it's a point that she's made several times before because it's like you could almost see him shaking his head rolling his eyes at oh yeah she's bringing this up again well his only way to respond to that is just to say well you're not dedicated to the cause you're you're not you don't care you're not really a socialist he's always calling the kettle black so
1: if we can't say no horror movie where all the main protagonists are rich privileged white kids comes out good you know from movies like green inferno to others when they try to insert themselves into trying to do something good it never works (laughs) they will get killed by zombie cannibals and slasher villains they are so far removed from reality. And this story kind of continues that dialogue.
0: Um, something that you had said uh, at the beginning, too, it was the second point that I really wanted to kind of um, pursue for, for a moment or two, is the use of humor in Lovecraft. And I actually think that uh, Kevin has done a, a nice job um, in working with humor in uh, it, yes, it is over the top, but at the same time, it's not parody, um, and I think it it does work here. Um, I actually really enjoyed the story when we were choosing stories. This was the first one that I thought of that I that I knew that I wanted to include in this episode.
1: It should be noted because we're not talking about him on this episode, but maybe a future episode, Kevin's actually written quite a few Lovecraft pastiches, and a lot of them veer toward comedy. A lot of them, like, are parodies of, like, Judy Bloom stories, like Tales of a Fourth Grade Shogoth," and uh, there's another one, like, Are You There, Uh, Cthulhu? It's Me. I I know I butchered that title. I just don't have it in front of me. Um, But, no, he writes a lot of comedic uh, Lovecraft stuff, and... Uh, he does a really good genre mashing up between those types of stories in lovecraft where he's able to to mix them up pretty well uh to to me uh this if i think about it this story because it takes place in the late 80s is sort of a mashup of really bad like 80s uh college films with Cthulhu in a weird sort of way this is probably a character that would be found like in a revenge of the nerds type film or some other like ski school type film where he's just a really bad you know antagonist but made protagonist it's actually one of the things I was thinking about is why is this movie set uh, not movie why is this story set in the 80s what does it add to it I can only think of, really, that this is a type of 80s villainous character that you would have seen back in the decade, but you still see now. You know, you think of, like, Toby from The Duff, where you have a really pretentious facade-type, you know, uh, student character that's not what he says he is. That's um, yeah, sorry, I was going with that one. <laughs> Kevin's really good at kind of combining Lovecraft with some other genre or format.
0: Yeah, and... You know, we actually interviewed him on the Scholars from the Edge of Time. Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that in our closing remarks. But um, in emails back and forth with Kevin, um, because he is a personal friend uh, as well, um, he actually talked about the fact that his writing in Lovecraft tends to go one of two ways. It's either going to be more on the comedy side, or he does take a very serious... Um, kind of full engagement with the Lovecraftian uh, mythos, I believe.
1: And he likes Shoggoths. He likes putting those in his story.
0: (laughs) Which kind of leads me to the
1: next question of, you know, I, I think that's kind of what does... Van scloot in as a Shoggoth, but I guess that's kind of my big question, going back to our first story of where we're talking about the professor and, you know, uh, how did he come across this chapel? I was more of the, the magical rationale, and you're more of the, oh, he just kind of pie passed it. I guess the big question here is is uh, did Neil Van scloot was he actually killed by his own shoddy construction or was he killed by some Lovecraftian beast? Now, you know, keep in mind, you know, this is kind of a successor story to Dunwich Horror, where in that story, you know, Dr. Armitage, you know, casts a spell, and Wilbur Ratley's twin brother, you know, explodes and is dead. But, you know, the idea being that, you know, the decades since, you know, the Dunwich Farm is falling into our compound, is in disrepair, and it's not, you know, too far-fetched to say that after, you know, the, you know, destruction of his twin, that some sort of Cosmic magic residue is still haunting the area in some capacity. Uh, so I guess that's the big question: is is what really killed Neil Van Skloot? Is it the official record where he's in his tent and it, you know, the building by his own shoddy hands falls on him, or did some other kind of Lovecraftian uh, purple green slime leaving thing? Because they do throw that in there. They said, they, they th-
0: yeah, they throw throw, throw in uh, three um, evidence pieces. One being the the purplish green slime on the concrete slab right outside the tent.
1: Which should, of note, Wilbur's twin was described as having purple rings and other purple stuff on him. So
0: okay, so that's one. Uh, the second evidence is that there's a big footprint. Again, Wilbur was a larger being. Um, so it could be, uh, there were, uh, unusual noises in the, the forest that, uh, Neil, uh, observed or listened to and, and actually documented in his journal. But in the, the Deacon, uh, not the Deacon, the, the Beacon reports that, uh, Neil had a horrific look on his face as though whatever was the last thing he saw Scared him to death.
1: Like a collapsing roof on him?
0: That would be pretty horrific. But he he wouldn't have seen it coming. So um, here's where I'm in a turntable. And full on, it was some sort of Lovecraftian monster. I
1: I agree. But little devil's advocate, because it's the type of stuff you would do. Unreliable narrator here. You True. Know, you know, he's he's putting in some stuff in his diary, so...
0: I guess the thing that uh, leads me to to figure that that it definitely is a Cthulhu monster, uh, or an old one, whatever, um, is the fact that Neil doesn't know anything
1: about... No, he doesn't.
0: You know, for him, he even comments that his only engagement with the library at Miskatonic is that he thinks that well, if they would sell off some of those tomes, they could actually uh, use some money for good. Um, so I think he is totally unprepared, unfamiliar with anything to do with Dunwich. And he he has no idea. So I think it's totally conceivable. And he even pooh uh Nicole when she says monsters, and he's like, oh, come on, be real.
1: If anything, I, I think we talked offline, you kind of made a... a... Color out of space connection here yes. I, i'm actually of you know uh, i will i will i would not let me put it this way if if i was living in this reality and you presented this report to me i'd say absolutely he died from his own sh- you know shoddy construction work wouldn't have questioned it but uh I, of course what's the fun in that this is a lovecraft story there has to be slimy monsters come on <laughs> um i i like i actually like the idea of of after Wilbur Watley's, you know, twin brother is destroyed, that it kind of contaminates the land in a very color out of space fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've played my fair share of fantasy RPGs over time. You always have that one area in a game where an epic battle was fought here ages ago and the magic is corrupt and the, the land isn't operating correctly and you know, phantoms of, you know, these past aren't you know, whatever. Whatever the trope is. I always thought that was kind of a neat thing where you know, something catastrophic happened, and the shadows still remain. Or, you know, like playing the game Retro Twenty Thirty Three, where you know there's scenes of where you're on a subway, and it like kind of relives its last moments of you know people riding through it and whatnot. And I, I kind of see that here. That maybe the you know this polluted, poisoned. Uh, destroyed land is, is seeing maybe the last moments of, uh, Wilbur before he, uh, Wilbur Watley's twin before he's, uh, destroyed, or in a color out of space fashion, you know, sort of like the movie Die, Monster, Die, or whatever, it's just a polluted area that just over time, you know, people have kind of shunned it, you know, the land is not quite right, you know, it, it I think it kind of adds a little flavor to it. A low-stakes flavor, kind of like our first story. Like, if this story didn't happen, would there be any impact to the greater everything? And the answer is no. You know, the world does not change. Uh, As much as our main protagonist wants to change the world, sorry, buddy, you fail. And even in your failure, the world doesn't, you know, change. Mm -hmm. But again, it's a slice-of-life story that, you know, it, it pokes little holes in the whole Arkham, Cthulhu, Mythos, Lovecraft writing, that it gives a little voice to something new and different. In this case, a pretentious, megalomaniacal, (laughs) over-the-top, pseudo-Marxist student.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I actually like your your concept about um, your imagining of, like, a haunting or a resonance of violence that continues to Reverberate in that area, uh, given all the the horror that um, that ensued there during the Dunwich Horror story. Um, I think I'm kind of covered all my points. I know you actually made mention of another film that I that I think bears uh, giving uh, some sort of comment to, and that's the Reanimator. I, I actually think this this film kind of pl- uh, not film. <laughs>
1: Sorry, we're film scholars, folks, first and foremost. I think this uh, short story kind of plays into two films in a weird sort of way. The first one being Reanimator, and only by setting. Because this story is set in the very late 80s, it's a different Miskatonic. When I read old Lovecraft, you know, the 1920s stuff, you know, I imagine, you know, Miskatonic as, you know, the 1920s building, you know, stone and wood, very, you know, menacing looking in a gothic Victorian, what, New England sort of way but since this is the the 80s after watching reanimator you know they have a couple of establishing shots of reanimator where it looks like a tech school it's a very nondescript you know squat you know glass and concrete brutalist looking building and you know uh, i kind of think that's the vibe of the miskatonic in this story it's a jeffrey combs kind of approach to lovecraft the second movie I think that the story actually overtly mimics is Blair Witch. You've got a group of kids out in the cursed woods slash marshlands staying in a tent trying to accomplish a project, be it film a documentary or make houses. You know, there's something out in the woods stalking them. It's just that the big difference between Blair Witch and this story is the main character's oblivious. It'd be like... You put him in the Blair Witch and everyone's like, Oh my god, there's a witch out there. Oh, you know, there's there's these, you know, wooden twiggy dolls and they've got bits of teeth in it. We're so scared and the guy's like, oh come on, it's just local hunters out there trying to scare us off, you cowards. There's nothing bad going on. Yeah, our compasses are screwed up, but that's those are shoddy capitalist made compasses. We're not really lost here. It would be that kind of character in Blair Witch, and we kinda of have it here. In a weird sort of way. And they're both found footage type stories. You know, Blair Witch is found footage of their, you know, VHS tapes being found. This is a found footage through a diary being found. So, in a way, this is kind of a Blair Witchian take on Lovecraft that has an oblivious character to the, you know, horrors that await him.
0: Do you think that, uh, like Blair Witch, because I, I, saw that movie many years ago and being kind of disappointed by the ending um not being able to see something and in this story we do we don't see the monster there even when neil looks up uh and is trying to like see what's moving above his head outside of the tent there's i i actually anticipated that there was going to be something where he's like Oh, my God, that looks like maybe that's a huge head with horns or tentacles or something. And there was none of that. And so that kind of, like, leads more to, well, did the house collapse on him? But after all. After all. But I, I do feel like I I kind of miss not having more of a nod to a monster.
1: It, you know, the way that the story ends, it ends the same way as Dagon ends. It ends the same way that... Uh... Ah, oh, nuts. I forget what it's called. The, the 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 guy, he's in Providence, and there's the church with the, the evil book. Oh, my. I'm drawing a blank on it. But it ends the same way. Oh, man, I'm a terrible Lovecraft fan if I can't remember that one. It's, it's got the, the Robert Block character in it. Oh, well, who cares? But they all in the same way. He's writing his diary. Oh, my God, there's something about to come through the door. I am ready for it. And in this case, it's like, you know... I think it ends appropriately like another, you know, a lot of leather Lovecraft stories do. I don't think it's that anticlimactic. I think Blair Witch is probably a bit better because we have the visual component. You know, you got the kids standing in the corner and it kind of ties into some earlier foreshadowing that the story doesn't have. But again, this is a... You know, a guy writing in his diary and he's, you know, leaving out the good pieces because it's making him look good are bad pieces.
0: Although a couple of pieces, he does, a couple of criticism does kind of seep in where like he's kind of dealing with it but then he he completely shakes it off
1: there is so many moments of mm -hmm. almost self-awareness yes that that he's so close but then he shrugs it off and Mm -hmm. you know what as as bad of a character again i don't mean to say bad it sounds mean again he dies i don't want anyone to die but uh you know there is those moments of self-awareness, that he almost gets it. And I think that really adds kind of a, a humanistic quality to him. Mm-hmm. You know, it really fleshes him out. He, for, he is a two-dimensional character. Uh, and, and that's, that's just kind of the way the story dictates it. Lovecraft has two-dimensional characters. I'm sorry. But there are these moments that Wetmore puts in here that does elevate him, you know, from a caricature, from a two-dimensional character, to almost something a little bit higher. But by his own hand, you know, he brings himself back. I think the only kind of final points I want to make is one, total coincidentally, but uh, the timeline that the story happens, you know, through March, you know, corresponds to being, uh, you know, decades earlier at the same time, Call of Cthulhu is corresponding. Um, yeah, I, I know it's spring break or anything, but it's something I cue in on. When you start putting dates on something, I start trying, like, oh, what happens at the same time conversely? And so... Uh, you know, the story ends on March 22, which is one day earlier than March twenty-third, when the alert lands on the Rosen City Aryla and accidentally unleashes Cthulhu, you know, some uh, 60 years earlier. And the other kind of point I want to make is, in a way, uh, Neil, he's kind of a parody of the scholars in... Uh, Lovecraft stories, where you have the, we were talking about the, the professor uh, in the first story that we read tonight. You know, I, I see this as two sides of the coin. The first story is Kevin Wetmore as a professor. This story is more of Kevin Wetmore dealing with these types of students. And I know Kevin has had to deal with a student like this before. <laughs> um, where, you know, most scholars, and even the scholar in the first story, they are very well-read. They're able to apply their proficiency to uh, a lot of Lovecraft instances and, and more or less able to negotiate it pretty well. They're able to take up the context, they're able to find the the rare book, cast a spell from it, understand what's going on as best as they can before they go mad. But here you have a character that is gifted with the same tools and capacity, but he doesn't ever do it.
0: No, he doesn't. He, he It's like he's intelligent, but he he does not have common sense. And, um, I think that that's what's kind of fascinating about, about Neil as a character that he's never, he never hits that point where he's fully aware. It's always, he's within his, I'm going to say within his little socialist box. And I think that that's what makes this story actually very interesting. While I, you know, there's a couple little minor things like not more, you know, presence of a monster, but that really is minor because the real story comes down to Neil and his own internal struggles, I think. I, and I think uh, it's, it's a great story for that.
1: It takes a bit of Lovecraft to bring the best of us out.
0: <laughs> Something like that. Well, and on that note, we are definitely coming up to our hour. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and close our second story and talk about some things that are coming up next. As mentioned during uh, our conversation with regards to Kevin's short stories, uh, we did mention that we had an interview with him, so do want to uh, note that there will be a link in the show notes of an interview that we conducted with Kevin Wetmore back on June 25th as part of our Scholars from the Edge of Time, uh, hosted by Voice of Olympus and Hercules Invictus. Uh, For our next Scholars from the Edge of Time episode that will um, air on Thursday, July 23rd at 6 p.m., that's uh, Pacific Coast time, our guest will be author and editor James Chambers. James writes in the horror, crime, fantasy, and science fiction genres. He wrote the Bram Stoker Award-winning graphic novel, Kojak the Night Stalker, The Forgotten Lore of Edgar Allan Poe, and he has written Lovecraftian-inspired books such as Dark Regions, The Engine of Sacrifice, uh, which I believe we also discussed Episode 25. Episode 25, and Raw Dog Screaming Presses on the Night Border. He has also contributed an essay to a new collection from Sequart titled From Bayou... To Abyss, Examining John Constantine, Hellblazer. I hope that you'll check out his website at jameschambersonline.com and his Amazon author page.
1: And continuing our examination of James's work for episode 30 of this podcast, we'll be discussing uh, the short stories, A Song Left Behind in the Aztecchia Hills, and Odd Hogs," both from his On the Night Border collection. If you want to read those stories prior to our podcast going live Sunday, August 2nd, you can purchase that collection from Raw Dog Screaming Press in either paperback or HUD cover edition. And we also invite you to go to archive.org and find our episode 25 where we discuss some of his stories from Engines of Sacrifice. So HP Lovecast, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com. And of course, you can also email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like to support us, uh, feel free to check out our books that Michelle and I have uh, edited or authored. We both have Amazon pages that contain links to our books such as James Bond and Popular Culture, Horror and Space, The New Peplum, and Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern. Um, so please head on over to Amazon and just do a quick search for us. We both have unique names. You'll find our books immediately. So thanks for listening. Thanks for your support, and stay safe out there.